Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to the founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Masketry, a Navajo Yankton Dakota Sioux writer, Jackie Keeler, about the tremendous online culture jam, which many called a brilliant hoax, that convinced people that Dan Snyder, owner of the Washington Racial Slurs, a.k.a. the Redskins, turned his name over to the better lights of truth and justice and changed it to the Red Hawks. Jackie Keeler has the inside story about how the culture jammers fooled all of media, and it was a beautiful thing. Also, I've got some choice words about Charles Barkley and his role in the Doug Jones improbable victory over the bigot Judge Roy Moore in Alabama. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards that are very, very timely and an extremely special Colin Kaepernick watch where I talk about Kaepernick's recent trip to Rikers Island. And I've got some serious thank yous for everybody who's been supporting the Patreon page of our podcast. We really do appreciate it. But first, let's go to Jackie Keeler. So, Jackie, but before I ask you about the the culture jam and the remarkable... I guess, I don't know what we would call it, but just deep pantsing of Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. I think most people, I mean, if they have an ounce of sense, will recognize that the name of the Washington team is a racial slur. But I just wanted to give you the floor to speak about what makes Native American mascotry a problem in the broadest sense. Yeah, it definitely has to do with um, the fact that uh, the stereotypes that mascots uh, represent um, are, um, they, they, they basically mask our actual realities as Native people in this country, and they impact us on many levels, um, including in even in the Supreme Court, um, if you saw with the baby Veronica case back in 2013, um, with the misunderstandings um, of what, of our, what our political position is. We're not simply a race or an ethnic group. We're actually um, citizens of sovereign nations within the United States. And, um, and so there's fundamental problems with the, the stereotype and the fact that it really um, 
um, doesn't reflect the lives of Native people today and, and leads to um, us being dehumanized by other Americans. Can you speak a little bit about that baby Veronica case, just in case there are folks listening who don't know what uh, that was? There's a federal law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed, I think, in 1977 or 78. And at the time, what they found out was that um, the United States government was in violation of the um, Geneva Conventions on Genocide, um, in that uh, they were uh, the majority, like 70% of Native children uh, were being removed from their homes, which falls under... Um, acts of genocide, because um, that's something that is often done to, um, um, you know, groups that want that, that they want to get rid of is they take their children away, right? So they can't actually continue as a nation or as an, as an identifiable group. And, um, and so this was done at, being done at such a massive scale in the 1970s. Um, and also there was the issue of, of Native women actually being um, um, sterilized without their consent. I think something like 40% of Native women were being sterilized. Oh so it's, um, so yeah, so the Indian Child Welfare Act was instituted to stop that, to make sure that Native children stay in Native homes. Um, you know, children were being removed for very small things like having too many, living, having their grandparents living in the home, um, having, you know, traditional extended Native American families, not having a toilet. You know, a lot of uh, reservation communities don't have running water. Um, and, and that still is true today, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, this is not the fault of the families, but the issue of, um, the lack of uh, money for infrastructure on reservations. And so, um, but I, um, but yeah, so this, um, it's, this law has been under attack quite a bit by, uh, um, particularly, um, the Republican party and, and, and conservative groups that, uh, really, um, want to adopt native children. And because uh, it makes it difficult, um, because it gives preference to tribes to keep children in their um, in their nation, um, and which is sensible. I mean, if if 70% of the children of France were being adopted um, out of the country, that would be an issue. That would be a national issue of of that government. Um, so, um, but yeah, they uh, so they were trying to attack it, and this white family adopted a Cherokee child um, from the white mother. But uh, not really realizing that, as a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, that um, that, she, that that she could uh, that the Cherokee Cherokee have a say about where she goes, and her family anyway. Her family was in no way found to be, um, uh, you know, they were found to be a, a good family, uh, her Cherokee family, and they wanted to raise the child. And uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and um, actually Nikki Haley um, was the governor of South Carolina at the time, and this family was from South Carolina, and they were taking a child from Oklahoma, and, uh, and they, they hired a PR team and spent a lot of money and basically won the Supreme Court based on misinformation that the, the justices, they, they don't know Indian federal law themselves, um, and so they gave that child, uh, they, they removed her from the Cherokee Nation, and the Cherokee Nation actually had her in a... Um, in a building owned by the Cherokee Nation, and Nikki Haley uh, sent uh, sent five like five cars with uh, with armed federal marshals there to basically take her away from her family. Jesus, that's and wow. The level of misunder when we talk about misunderstanding and you know ideas that Native nations don't exist, and this is what it really means. And of course, now Nikki Haley is our um, representative at the UN. Yeah. Um- just this week, uh, yelling for war with Iran. Um, uh, just the best people, the best people. And, and 
it's just th- this idea of what you said about mascotry makes these issues invisible uh, because everybody's so busy uh, looking at that mascot and not looking at the reality of how folks have to live in native country. Yeah. And the fact that the mascot reflects um, really stereotypes from another century mm-hmm. means that people in the past. And, of course, the worst of the worst is the one of the Washington football team, which speaks to the actual violence of genocide, as you and I have discussed on this show before. So let's talk about this culture jam, uh, this <laughs> this event that made a lot of very smart people in the media, and it made my phone blow up. Make no mistake about it, Jackie. Of people being like, holy crap, Dan Snyder changed the name of the team to the Red Hawks. And I said, no, that's got to be some sort of hoax. And I use the word hoax because I didn't know that it was, I don't use the word hoax for this because, um, you know, this is like to me much more culture jam, political act. And, yeah. But I used the word hoax at first because I was like, no, you're just getting played by somebody. And But then I'm looking at the websites and the websites look so real that I had to do like a double and triple check just to make sure. So... Let me ask you about this culture jam. So who is behind this and what was their intent? Yeah, so I, I, um, I interviewed um, uh, two, um, two young Native women who um, were part of the small group that did this um, totally volunteer effort. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, um, led, um, it was originally the idea of Rebecca Nagel, and she is a, um, a young Cherokee woman who lives in, in Maryland. And... Um, and I, I've been an admirer of her writing. Um, she did some really great writing about um, Elizabeth Warren and being not being a Cherokee and all this stuff. And and, um, and so um, yeah, so this this was her idea. And she told me she first got it um, when the um, actually um, uh, she she thought of it during the trademark um, when the trademark um, fight was going on in the courts. And um, she thought it'd be fun to mess with their trademark if they if they had lost control of it and they couldn't do anything about it. You know, mm-hmm. and then um, and then later after the Washington Post poll came out and the slants ruling, she really felt like really like she wanted to do something and because it really offended her. The um, incredibly and, skewed Washington Post poll saying yeah. that Native Americans were absolutely a OK with the team name that and I'm just refer people to edge of sports dot com. If you want to hear a back show from about a year ago where on this show you beautifully and mercilessly tore apart that poll. So if folks want to know more info on that, that's where you can go for background, but please continue. Yeah. Um, so she, she, um, she, she felt that the Washington post, um, because they use self identification, um, for native, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, um, it shows that they don't understand native American identity. And, and she said that it, it resu- results in a gross misrepresentation in the media and that people in the media don't know how to talk about this. And, um, and I think this is part of the larger discussion about the lack of diversity in the media. And, of course, we saw that with the New York Times doing that, that soft feature on um, a Nazi, a neo-Nazi. Yeah, that's absurd. <laughs> so it's the same thing here where, you know, they obviously, um, you know, people who want to skew the results are going to self-identify as Native, mm-hmm. right, who have no Native ancestry or have no Native identity, you know. So, and um, or have such a mild, you know, have just a, um, a colloquial story in their family. Mm-hmm. So I would get it back to the culture jam. So so so, how long did it take them to plan this? She said they started in early October, 
And um, and they actually did contact me about it, but I was traveling and I missed their messages. <laughs> I need to get better at that. And yeah, so they um, they kept it pretty quiet with a small group. Um, I think there was like no more than five people involved. And um, and one of them was um, a designer who did the graphic design and and helped them build the websites. And they also consulted with attorneys to make sure that they that they couldn't be sued. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. that's very smart. Um, and so, how um, how effective do you think it was? Like looking at the landscape, looking at who picked it up, and and are the people who organized it happy with how it went? I think you know I, I have to feel when I first heard about it, and um, someone sent me a screenshot, and I looked at that, and I thought, oh, I immediately thought that the website had been hacked, you know, and um, which I thought would be really cool. And um, but of course, you know, I don't don't condone illegal activities at all Uh, and um but um but you know uh um but yeah i think that i I was a bit surprised by some of the reaction um i um a lot of people and um native people who commented on my posts about it were hurt they were actually they felt that i actually interviewed um one of them um ben um and ben barnes and he's um he's an assistant chief with the shawnee nation in oklahoma and he said that he felt, um, at first he felt very elated. He thought that suddenly he felt like America is a better place. He was like, here we had Alabama did the right thing. And finally, our day has come. We have not been forgotten, is what he told me. And then he started noticing the URLs were off and the graphics were slightly off. And, and the statement didn't really ring true to him. And then, um, and then they basically he said that he and other Native people felt duped. Like he felt like the joke was on them, not on Snyder. Mm. And, and was, so was that your um, impression? No, I didn't have that impression at all. I was actually really, um, really surprised by the hurt feelings um, by many Native people. And I really do feel this shows how important this is to the Native community. The fact that so many people were hurt by the fact that it wasn't real. Because they felt you know? a sense of hope. Like, yes. oh my God, this, this billionaire yes. who's been lording this slur over us. And boasting about it, my goodness, he actually is having a moment of clarity and humanity. Yes, and Rebecca said that she felt she didn't get she didn't hear the opposite at all. She didn't hear anyone say, "Oh, I really like the mascot, and I'm sorry it's gone." She she didn't hear any native people saying that. Everyone was just so happy that it was gone. And um, and uh, but um, but he said that he felt there are particularly elderly people don't understand, um, just didn't understand that. It, they didn't understand a culture jam and and for them you know he he said that basically what did he say he said um i asked him if, if he thought the momentary elation was too high a price you know mm-hmm. and he said i really think it i really think it was we are all um he was saying how we're on this continuum of idealism and being you know realists and um and that he felt a lot of old folks who woke up yesterday didn't think they'd live to see that mascot gone mm-hmm. that then they, find, then they find out the joke's all on you. It wasn't on Dan Snyder and Washington. It shifts that needle to jaded of what we can and cannot do. So interesting. That, yeah, that was that was an interesting reaction. I had not expected that. And um, I guess my so response was, to that, my, my very, very respectful response to that would be looking at when the Washington football team actually then had to issue a response to this a culture jam. Yes. And I don't know if you have the response in front of you right there. Do you have it? Um, I don't. I think I tweeted it out. It's yeah, just it's all good. But but you it, saw it and I saw it. 
yeah, it was just a very short statement saying, you know, um, you know, I um, that we're, we're going to keep the mascot. Timmy. Yeah, and- but it also like, but then that that led to a whole round of people being able to raise those sharp criticisms of the Washington football team, which have largely been muted this year. I think muted by a combination of the political issues in the NFL around the anthem and kneeling and police brutality, uh, swamping that as an issue, and also the team's just general mediocrity, keeping it out of the national limelight. And and so that, that was part of my elation about this thing overall, because I want to be talking about this thing all the time. Like, I think it's a national disgrace. And this culture jam, this individual act brought it back into the limelight in a way that, you know, was effective. Yeah. And I I spoke to another, um, 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 a friend of mine, her name is Melanie Yazzie. She's a professor and she felt, she felt the exact opposite of Ben. Um, She felt that, that she said that she knows for a fact that these kind of victories are incredibly important for native people. It's actually important to have these kinds of victories and celebrate them when they happen. And this has something to do with the joy felt by Native people. Symbolic change is slated to material change. So, mm. uh, yeah. So I think um, yeah, it was it was a mixed reaction. I'd have to say. Um, I thought it was a brilliant. Um, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And and I really um, really was um, talking to young women. I was really um, uh, you know it gave me hope. Do you mean that it's being taken up by another generation, and um, and that it's not something that's going to go away. I mean. Uh, Dan Snyder is never going to be able to really enjoy uh, mascotting us because we always will speak out. Mm. And and broadly, I mean, wh- where do you think we are uh, with this movement right now on the well, question so- of mascotry and, of course, linking it to issues like uh, the uh, Bears Ears, uh, the attack on, on Native land, uh, to the fact that uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline had that horrific leak last month? I mean, wh- wh- where are we right now? Yeah, it's very interesting because I had just attended um, um, last week a conference um, in Phoenix, Arizona, put on by funded by the Kellogg Foundation, and they actually funded more research on on the mascot issue and on Native representation um, in the media. And um, actually done by Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, uh, she's a Tule Lip tribal member who um, did a lot of the research at Stanford that we often refer to in, on on harm of mascots due to youth and. Um, and it was very interesting what she found. Um, they're still looking at the data, but um, and they did a lot of focus groups um, of white people of what they thought, and they found that seventy-one point seven percent surveyed said they never seek out information about Native people. Mm. They found that only fifteen percent were correct for historical knowledge, and twenty-five um, percent correct for contemporary knowledge. And when they did a true/false test, you know, they found that less than fifty percent were right, which is what is. It, what they could be randomly that could be a random i mean if you chose just any mini mini mo you could get that result so people just don't know a lot they don't seek out information about native people they don't know a lot about native people and um so um and that many of them have no native friends um in for college in college um folks um have 40 percent it's very low and they have never met native people and um and the warmth they had, they measured warmth towards perceptions of Native Americans, and um, and they uh, found that there was no difference between the college and adult sample, and that rates were 60 to 65 percent were not seen as fully human, not 100 percent, and seen more as animalistic. Wow, that that's really yeah. something. Uh, yeah. Wow. So so 
God, I just have to thank you so much for doing the work that you do, Jackie. It's so important. And I wanted just to bring up something that relates to your work, doesn't relate to this culture jam. Um, You were just mentioned on Samantha B's show, like your high country news article about Bears Ears and uranium mining. I don't know. I guess I I want to give you the chance to both speak about uh, what the thesis of your article was about Bears Ears and how it got into Samantha B's hands and what the reaction has been. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I wrote a book um, called Edge of Morning and um, Native Voices Speak for the Bears Ears, and, and it came out earlier this year, and I interviewed a lot of the principals who were involved with creating the monument proposal. Um, these are Native Americans, members of tribes around the Bears Ears, and, um, and they worked on this for several years, and, um, and so it was really um, amazing to see tribes working together this way. Um, we had five indigenous nations that, um, you know, supportive support the proposal as their as national policy, and um, and it also offered tribes a chance to have a seat at the table. Um, they have a Bears Ears Commission. Um, each uh, each tribe has a representative, and there's a federal representative, and um, and so um, this was a big deal because it's very rare that tribes have any sort of say over energy resources. Um, and um, particularly outside of their reservation areas. Bears Ears uh, is an area that is about the size of New Jersey. It's in the southeastern corner of Utah, near the Four Corners. And, um, and tribes used to live there. The Navajo, Navajo, Navajos used to live there. Um, and in the county itself, it is still majority Navajo, although um, their voting rights are suppressed. Uh, the county, the white minority was found in, the county was found in violation of the Voting Rights Act um, last year in a federal court, the lawsuit brought by the Navajo Nation. And um, so it's, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a momentous, um, the, the proposal is, is an amazing step forward in, in uh, government-to-government relations between the United States government and these Native nations. And, uh, and Trump basically um, sought to undo all that. Do you think uh, he's going to end up being that, successful? I know there's going to be serious lawsuits against him. Yeah, there are already um, five tribes are suing him and many other organizations like um, the Utah Dinebikeya, um, which is a group I interviewed of, of Navajos um, who um, have worked very hard to get the proposal um, um, passed uh, or, you know, the monument created and also the, uh, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. Um, and, uh, but, uh, and from when I, I, I talked to a, a Native American rights lawyer who's representing um, some of the um, plaintiffs um, and they um, they are very confident that they're going to win this that the the law the Antiquities Act is very short in no way I think it's like just a few sentences long it in no way gives the president any right to um, reduce the monuments only to create them only Congress can reduce the monuments um, presidents have done it in the past but it's never been challenged um, in court before because they did very minimal changes and um, and so, um, but they, one of the things that um, Trump did was he included a severity, severity clause in there, uh, which is only normally used in like business contract uh, law, but he included in there. And so even if he loses the case, um, you know, that he can't reduce the boundaries of the monument, he, everything else he put in his proclamation still stands. And that includes reducing the, the oversight of the Bears Ears Commission to just a small area called, that, that he's called Shashja which means Bears Ears and Navajo. And that would then, um, you know, then mean that the, the Native nations there do not have a say over uh, mining over, um, you know, the million or so acres that he took out 
of the monument. And the name of the article that was featured um, was um, Trump tells tribes, uh, let them eat yellow cake. And, um, and this is a reference to uh, the, uh, the uranium mining um, interests that are on the monument. Um, there are only, the only kinds of mines that are on the monument are uranium mines. Um, the oil and gas mines were excluded um, in Obama's proclamation. And, um, and yeah, the, many of the um, local Navajo and Ute Mountain Ute communities are impacted very uh, negatively. And the quote that, uh, um, that Samantha B. Um, featured was that 85% of Navajo homes um, have um, uranium in them. And I'd also like to add that uh, Navajos living near abandoned uranium mines have um, 95, they're in the 95th percentile and above of uranium in their bones and Navajo babies were found to be peeing uranium and nobody knows what the medical, what, what that will mean medically because there have never been studies done on that. So it's basically um, a huge experiment on the largest native nation in the country and, and creating um, very toxic environments for native communities where the language is taught, uh, you know, where you, you have to live in these communities to learn the language. Uh, there are 125,000 fluent speakers of Navajo but there are only 900 people in the world who speak Ute Mountain Ute, and that community um, of White Mesa, where 50% speak it, um, is right next to a uranium mill, and um, and is um, that's right over their water, their only water resource, um, which is um, a uh, aquifer. Mm. Her name is Jackie Keeler. Uh, she's the founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Masketry. Jackie, I ask this of everybody who comes on the show: What are you listening to these days? <sighs> Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I actually um, listen a lot to my friend Clee Manali. He, um, he he has some great songs, and um, I've been listening to, um, oh, what is it, Something to the Sun. It's um, And he does a lot of really great music, actually, about fighting uranium um, poisoning on the Navajo Nation. And now we sing again to the house of the dawn. There are no that can write this wrong. Dang, sounds like the feel-good album of the year. Um, <laughs> Jackie Keeler, always a terrific interview. Thank you so much for breaking down the intricities and three-dimensional nature of this culture jam. Um, best to you and, all, and your work. Thank you. In all this library's pain Now nothing grows That doesn't carry the trauma that we weep that you suck. And now I've got some choice words about the role of Charles Barkley in the recent Alabama senatorial race that rocked this country. So as Democrat Doug Jones gave his improbable victory speech last Tuesday night, he was joined on stage by NBA legend Charles Barkley, which certainly made some tongues wag. The 53-year-old Barkley, who was born and raised in Leeds, Alabama, had given a speech for Jones the night before at a rally where he said, quote, At some point, we've got to stop looking like idiots to the nation. I love Alabama, but we've got to draw a line in the sand. We're not a bunch of damn idiots, end quote. In other words, Roy Moore gets elected. Alabama is a bunch of damn idiots. The next night, basking in the glow of the Jones victory, Barkley told... Democrats that they had better stop taking black votes as a given and offering nothing in return. He said in what CNN's Jake Tapper described as 
a blistering message to the Democratic Party. This is a wake-up call for Democrats to do better for black people and poor white people. It's time for them to get off their ass and start making life better for black folks and people who are poor, end quote. Now, I've been following Charles Barkley's politics for a long time. I think I first wrote about it 17 years ago. And on this issue of race, class, and division, he has been remarkably consistent over the course of his public life. 15 years ago, this is what Charles Barkley said. He said, my number one priority is to help poor people in this country. 90% of the money is controlled by 10% of the people, and that's not right, end quote. And last year in Baltimore, he said, America discriminates against poor people, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, whatever. Poor people are dealt a crappy hand, end quote. But it should be noted that Barclay's political views have always been a scattershot mess, like a Jackson Pollock painting with a bunch of scraps and splotches and smears thrown against a wall. While he has supported movements for immigrant and LGBT rights, he also called people in the streets of Ferguson facing off against the militarized police scumbags. He was then given a show on Turner Television called The Race Card to talk about racial issues in the United States. And a lot of people groaned when they heard Charles was getting that show, and he did nothing to dissuade them from their concern. On that show, he gave airtime to Nazi Richard Spencer. And then he made an appearance at a Baltimore church after the police killing of Freddie Gray at the same event where he said the poor were dealt that crappy hand, and he was angrily jeered off the stage after lecturing the working-class black crowd to embrace the police and stop focusing on police killings. There were people in that crowd who had, in fact, lost loved ones to the police, and the message did not go down well as he was whisked from the stage by security. And then there was that time in 2016 when he was asked about the police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, those killings that were broadcast across social media and took place on back-to-back days and sparked eventually the Colin Kaepernick knee-down later that summer in August. So while Colin Kaepernick had his reaction to those killings, here it was Charles Barkley's. He said, quote, Why don't black people get mad when we kill each other? I'm not trying to deflect or place blame. That's just a fact, end quote. Now, that sounded something more like Donald Trump or Jeff Sessions would say than someone rooted in the reality of these communities. His broadcast partner, Kenny Smith, wrote a rather remarkable open letter to Barkley after he called those in Ferguson scumbags. And I want to read to you what Kenny Smith said. He said, For those of us who are decades removed from the struggle because of our life through sports or business, we now have to acknowledge that every option listed exists. That's every option for resistance. If not, then we are the ignorant ones. That leads me to the looters analogy. If you put 100 people on an island with no food, no water, no hope of a ship coming in, then some will overcome it and be resourceful, some will live in it, others will panic, and others will show horrific character, which is wrong. But not to understand that all alternatives are possible is wrong as well." So, when prominent people like CNN contributor Anna Navarro who is a never-Trump Republican, say things like, quote, Seriously, though, Democrats need to make Charles Barkley chair of the DNC, end quote, after the Jones victory. It's important to remember which sides he has chosen to take over the years. There is no discernible philosophy other than speaking out in solidarity and in support with all movements, save those that are explicitly against racism. 
So all gratitude to Charles Barkley for speaking out consistently about poverty and his willingness to take a stand for Doug Jones deserves every compliment and his every criticism of the Democratic Party absolutely positively needs to be heard. But his political legacy is best summed up by something he said a dozen years ago. Quote, I was a Republican until they lost their damn minds, end quote. Look, I'm sure that reflects the beliefs of many people out there in Donald Trump's America. But without anti-racism, racial solidarity is a pipe dream. That's not only the case in Alabama, that's a reality for all 50 states. We'll be right back, but first, a very important quick word for Edge of Sports listeners. Yo, we are starting a Patreon page. All you got to do is go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod, where you can become someone who helps keep this podcast going. We've got different categories by which you can give to help us keep on doing the work that we're doing. Look, I never thought I would need a Patreon page, but the fact of the matter is this. That intersection of sports and politics has just exploded in the last year, and we want to do more. We want to take the show on the road. We want to make more merch. We want to do more stuff. And to do that, we need your help. And depending on how much you give, uh, we're going to be giving something back. I mean, whether it is a signed book I've written, whether it is a bi-monthly mailbag, whether it is a t-shirt, all of these things are available. And we're doing it because we want to support the continuance of this podcast. Look, this podcast will always be free. You don't got to give anything. But if you appreciate the content we give, please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And now, back to the podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week it goes to Damora Smith of the NFL Players Association, Michelle Roberts of the National Basketball Players Association, Donald Fear of the NHL Players Association, and Tony Clark of the MLB Players Association. That's baseball. They're all part of a group of more than 100 unions that released a Declaration of Human Rights for athletes. And that declaration includes 17 articles that are laid out, including the right to unionize, collectively bargain, express opinions freely, that's a big one on this landscape, and receive equal pay for equal work. And I want to read to you what Damora Smith said about the importance of them coming together. He said, The importance of the declaration is actually philosophically bigger than just the issue of collective bargaining. It's reminding everyone that where we start in this process is the men and women who play sports did not choose to give up basic human rights that we would want for every worker, end quote. So look, anytime unions flex their muscles in the world of sports and do so in the interests of positivity and progressive values, we are going to give them love on this show. But we also got a Just Sit Your Ass Down award. Sit your ass down. And that goes to Rob Manfred who's the commissioner of Major League Baseball, sit your ass down for letting Derek Jeter dismantle the Marlins and basically give away the 59 home run hitting Giancarlo Stanton. This is such a slap in the face to South Florida. South Florida got a taxpayer-funded stadium that's right in the middle of Little Havana, cost a fortune. The people of, of South Florida were lied to about how much it would cost. People on the city council were lied to about it. It was one of the biggest heists in stadium funding history, and that really does say something. Then you get Derek Jeter come in. Derek Jeter put up no money. They got the price up to $1.2 billion and incurred so much debt that they gave away Giancarlo Stanton and also many other players of note on those Miami Marlins. 
Baseball signed off on this. South Florida deserves better than this. And the Yankees, of all people, do not deserve to be able to bat Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton back-to-back. It's absurd. In the words of Stu Gotts, the co-host of The Dan Lebitard Show on ESPN, this now makes number one on the Derek Jeter list of all-time Yankee moments. Forget about the flip. Forget about the dive. It's him buying the Marlins with no money and handing them Giancarlo Stanton and slapping the many South Florida baseball fans right across the face. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest political, social, athletic actions of Colin Kaepernick, and you really do have to cover this week to week. This week, Colin Kaepernick visited Rikers Island. I mean, it was a beautiful act where he went there to speak to the prisoners and In the words of a corrections department spokesperson, quote, share a message of hope and inspiration. However, less than 24 hours after the surprise visit, the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association, that's the union of the COs, said that Kaepernick's visit will inspire inmates to acts of violence towards guards. This is true. Now, CO unions are notorious in terms of who they are, what they stand for, and the kinds of demands that they make. This is not a union that you stand with in solidarity. This is a union that you oppose given some of the things that they ask for, like the ability to crack down on people who have to live in the criminal justice system of the United States. Now, I want to read this comment by Glenn Martin, the founder of a group called Just Leadership USA. That's an inmates' rights group. And he, of course, was in full support of Kaepernick's visit. This is what he said, quote, The world should see the hell that is Rikers Island. Collins' profile has helped shed light where it is needed. The fact that the corrections officers are more focused on his socks, that was one of their comments, was that Kaepernick shouldn't have been there because he wore those pig socks one day in practice. While people are getting their brains bashed in is despicable. Colin understands that the systemic racism he's fighting nationally is epitomized on Rikers, end quote. That is absolutely correct. Rikers Island is notorious. I give props to Colin Kaepernick for going there, for shedding light on the conditions of Rikers Island. And of course, there is a movement to close Rikers Island because of the horrific nature of how people are treated. And if Rikers Island gets shut down, guess who gets hurt by it? The Corrections Officers Benevolent Association. So they are trying to protect their jobs at the expense of basic human rights. So that's the Kaepernick Watch this week. Shout out to Colin Kaepernick for always keeping it 100. So watch your back before you get sacked. These are a bunch of maniacs that's about to attack. If you're a hustling bro, keep a low profile because you won't be smiling on back.
before I sign off for this week, I want to thank all of our patrons who have given us $5 or more a month who have signed up to do that, which is going to allow us to continue uh, this broadcast. This is only a portion of the folks who've given. I'll be doling it out on the week to week. I was going to ask my producer, David Tigabu to read these names because I really thought it would be important for people to hear that this isn't just me doing this, but we got a team working on this show, and that's who you are supporting. But he said to me, Dave, you need to read these names because that's what people are signing up for. So I'm going to do that. So thank you so much to Christine Garcia, David Leonard, Demis Salase, Barry Shapiro, Ebenezer Akhile, Michael Mitchell, Robel Workhu. Adam Loeb, Dan Bloom, Zach Zill, my man, Dave Korzynski, The Blinclusivity Podcast, Susan Dwyer, Dan Greenman, Sue Moon, Johnny Taylor, Chris Guevara, Julie Fain, Peter Mizell, Mike Beats, and John Wiener. Thank you so much, everybody. I really do appreciate it. We really do appreciate it. And as soon as we develop a few more patrons, please spread the word. We're going to start offering the kind of bonus content that we are promising. And so thank you, everybody else out there, for listening. Please become a patron as well. You just got to go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And to everybody out there listening, we appreciate it. If you want to listen to back episodes, you can always go to edgeofsportspodcast.com. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher or your podcast app of choice. And please leave comments, leave ratings. It makes a big difference in the algorithms, which I don't even pretend to understand. And so thank you all so much. Uh, For David Tigaboo, my producer, Dan Baker, who's not here this week, I'm Dave Zirin. Stay frosty, everybody, and happy holidays. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.